Hi, I'm Gabriel Carrillo from the EdTech Bytes Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Good everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. My special guest today is Dr. Ruby Payne, a best-selling author and speaker on social class and the impact of poverty in the classroom. As a former high school teacher and principal, Dr. Payne understands the unique challenges facing schools and communities across the country, creating AHA Process in 1996 that specializes in consulting, training, and publishing, providing professional development on changing attitudes about economic class and how to work more effectively with our most vulnerable kids at school. Recognized internationally for a framework for understanding poverty, her foundational book and workshop, Ruby is a popular speaker who has given more than 4,000 speeches and presentations around the world as her book, A Framework for Understanding Poverty, has now sold more than 1.8 million copies. This was a great conversation, folks, really speaking to the issues we have in schools with children who have emotional challenges. And packed in this episode are some great strategies to build stronger relationships with kids and parents in our schools. Be sure to like, share, and give a review of this podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast and help spread the message to reimagine schools by sharing episodes out with your colleagues and your educational leaders in your school district. My conversation with Dr. Ruby Payne begins right now. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagine Schools podcast. My special guest today is Dr. Ruby Payne, a best-selling author, speaker, and consultant on education and economic class. Her book, A Framework for Understanding Poverty, has sold almost 2 million copies now, so a big welcome to Dr. Ruby Payne. How are you, Dr. Payne? I am very well, thank you, and absolutely delighted to be with you today. Well, thanks so much for being here. As I was just telling you off air, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, I spent 15 years as a school district superintendent in Illinois, and I know I've had a couple opportunities to hear you speak. I can't pinpoint the location, but I really enjoyed, uh, you know, the work you do, the research you do. So, you know, thanks for coming on the, the program and talking to our listeners a little bit about what you do. Absolutely. So let's kind of jump into it. First of all, I hope you and the family are safe. It's just been a just been an odd time that we're in with uh, all the schools across the country shuttered and the impact that it has not only on teaching and learning, but, you know, we have kids at home that are missing each other. They're missing their teachers. Uh, they're out of their routine. And, uh, you know, as an expert on poverty, you know, I would think that our most vulnerable kids are also the ones having the most difficult time, especially when you think about, uh, you know, some kids don't have devices at home or they don't have internet. Uh, so there's a lot of inequity still in just having the utilities to do remote learning. Yes. I, one, for me, one of the most interesting things is that 
we've had economic downturns, but this is different for this reason. It, most people think that the purpose of school is to go to, to learn, but for children from poverty, economic poverty, the reason school serves as a safety net for them. If you look at how society operates, I mean, virtually everything for children goes through schools. Like for example, vaccinations, the schools are the ones who check on those. For example, medical care. A lot of times for children in poverty, it's the school that provides the medical care. Food, okay? It becomes just child abuse reports. 80% come out of public schools. So it becomes the hub for kids. And the problem is that safety net is decimated now. And so for many children, their basic safety is at risk. Their basic survival is at risk. Uh, domestic violence calls are up by 35% right now across the United States. So what you have is this safety net has been decimated. And I think one of the, the things that is new that we're dealing with that I've never seen before, we talk a lot about generational poverty and we should, but we're also in a time where we're dealing with situational poverty because I saw a statistic this morning, one out of six Americans are out of work. And so think about the impact that, you know, maybe this is a whole new experience. Mom and dad no longer have the money to buy whatever you need or whatever you want. So, you know, it's also been a shift in that direction, I think. Yes. One of the things that happened I thought was very interesting in the 2008 re uh, recession in Colorado, Denver area, where several of the upscale suburbs there, they had children who were actually coming to school hungry because the parents lost their jobs and in order to hang on to their mortgages, they were using the money they had for the mortgage and not for food. And one of the issues I think that will come to play here is the situational poverty. And what happens when you move from uh, stability to instability, which what happens and how families who've always been stable deal with instability. And the rules change and the hidden rules change. And uh, middle class has these hidden rules that you don't, I don't share with you and you don't share with me. I don't ask you for money and you don't ask me for money. You share, but not money, okay? Uh, you never quit a job till you have another one. Um, and so all these rules that operate around money don't work anymore. And I know that you're a former classroom teacher, you're a former elementary school principal, which plays in well with our reimagined schools theme. If you could kind of go back to those times, working in the classroom or working as a building level administrator, uh, you know, the name of your website's the AHA process. I'm assuming you also had your own AHA moment at some time in those roles as to how to more effectively deal with at-risk students. Yes, and I think the key issue there, one of the most interesting things, of course, is the relationship with you have. They're not going to work for you if they don't like you. Um, in some uh, poverty, it's considered a form of uh, dishonesty to work for somebody you don't like. But another issue is that they watch your nonverbals. And most uh, middle-class educators are not aware of how much their nonverbals give away. Nonverbals are determined by intent. And so the, you learn to pay attention to that in poverty because if you wanna survive, you need to know somebody's intent. So they'll watch nonverbals. And um, in one piece of research, I saw that 
the humans give out about 240 nonverbals at any given time. Each person does. So your ability to read those has to do with your survival. And I think many times educators aren't aware of their nonverbals, which is a key factor in the relationship. And one woman asked me, how do I know what mine are? And I said, all you have to do is ask yourself your intent. Is your intent to understand or not? Yeah, and you know, it wasn't too long ago, um, you know, working in an administrative role. I remember meeting with my high school principal. And at the time, you know, the college and career readiness had just come out. And, and I wanted to talk about how we can collect some data at our high school for first-generation college students. And I remember having that conversation with her, an outstanding high school principal. And she looked up, she said, Dr. Gowan, she said, I think we're missing something here. It's not about first-time college graduates. We have some, some families here that haven't had first-generation high school graduates. And that was probably my aha moment. So I think sometimes we're, we're missing the big picture on some of this. Yes, I agree. So whenever you have those conversations, and um, I, I don't know if identify is the word, but when you start trying to track and figure out these families that have been in this position, uh, what are some strategies or some things that maybe we can do that we don't, I think a lot of times we miss opportunities every day because as administrators, we're so busy, we're so quick to make decisions and move on to the next thing. What do we have to do to slow down and think differently about working with, with all kids, really? Well, first of all, I like to ask kids two questions before I engage much into a uh, deeper conversation. One question I like to know is who do you care the most about? And the second question is who cares the most about you? And what you're listening for as an adult. And if they don't have an adult, like if they say my two-year-old brother, my dog, if they don't have an adult, then the first thing I do is find them an adult that's gonna to talk to them three to four minutes every day, one-on-one. -on -one. Because the biggest issue is that's gonna be key. They need an adult. Yeah, and I think that's well said. And, you know, again, we get in such a rush to solve problems and move on to the next thing that we forget that a lot of times there are, there are bigger issues. And when we talk about your newest book, uh, Emotional Poverty, I think a lot of times we fall into this trap of thinking that poverty is just a financial situation. But you've kind of uh, put a different spin on it, which I think is very valuable. So can you just talk about that and why that book was important for you to write? Uh, I wrote that book because more and more, everywhere I go, educators are trying to deal with uh, emotional issues as a discipline issue and it's not working. It's not a discipline issue, it's an emotional issue. And emotional issues are so deep-seated. And I wanted to, First of all, I have to know my heart is with teachers. I love teachers, okay, educators. I, I think they're such a gift to humanity. And I'm heart sick right now about how they're getting beat up, okay, uh, in every way when uh, they make such a difference in so many people's lives. And I thought you know, everywhere I went, and there would be teachers in tears. I mean, if you, if you want to listen to what's happening at the four-year-old and five-year-old and six-year-old level right now, it's unbelievable. Uh, more four and five-year-olds were put in alternative care last, I mean, alternative placement last year than any other grade level. And I mean, kids who come into school and they rip off all their clothes and they run around screaming naked and they have no idea why they're upset. 
kids, it takes an hour with a therapy dog to calm them down. And the bottom line is they're getting more of these children. In fact, I asked principals the last two years, I said, what are you dealing with this year that you haven't dealt with in the past? And the response I'm getting from elementary principals quite frequently is children who are coming into first grade who are not potty trained, okay? And one of the issues is they're dealing with these huge issues at the secondary, they're dealing with school shooting. And there are teachers at secondary who are afraid. And so what I wanted to do is I thought, okay, I went back to the clinical research. How do you name this that's happening? And how do you define it? And what are the strategies that really work, okay? A lot of teachers tell me they're doing a lot of trauma-informed care, but the teachers go out of those workshops and they have no strategies. They know what it is, they have no idea what you do about it. So I wrote the book to give a basic language around emotional realities, why discipline works with some kids and not others, how can you predict where your shooters are gonna come from, and you can. Uh, how can you uh, uh, deal with situations? And then the last part of the book is, what are the emotional realities you bring into the classroom with you as an adult? And we look at stages of adult development and what that means as you go through your own emotional uh, journey. Like, let me ask you this question. In the research, what is the most dangerous age to be an adult? I would think it would be the teenage years because, you know, with social media today, cyberbullying, there's a lot of uncertainty trying to find validation, but I could tell by the shaking of your head that I'm inaccurate. It's 35 to 45. Oh, wow. More adults fall. They just twist off, fall off. I mean, they just twist off. And the bottom line is, it's documented in the research. So we talk, adults have developmental stages just like kids do. So we identify the developmental stages that adults can go through and how that brings emotional realities into the classroom. But another thing I was very interested in is just how you teach regulations, brain regulations, and how you calm kids down. Like, I'll give you one quick strategy. One of the calmest ways, one of the fastest ways to calm kids down is look at the ceiling. When your eyes are on the ceiling, your brain literally cannot neurologically access what is stored emotionally. So you just calm down, okay? Um, and then there's a chapter in there about the difference between male and female brains as they uh, deal with emotion. Computers can tell between 70 and 75% of the time whether they're dealing with a male brain or a female brain based on brain structure. And one of the things we know is that male brains uh, process emotion differently than female brains do. Male brains take a lot more longer to process emotions. One reason is they have more blood flow within hemispheres. Um, but if you know some of these things, it makes you it, much easier to deal with what your emotional realities of your classroom and your building. And when I first heard you talk about the difference between male and female brains, uh, I, I immediately went to my wife and I said, you know what? I've been right the whole time because when, when I'm upset or if I'm angry, I don't like to talk about it immediately. I like to take time to process and gather my thoughts. Whereas, you know, her female brain, she wants to immediately start talking about why or what or when. And so I feel a little bit validated now that uh, I know that that's the case. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, female brains in the brain scans, they've processed emotion in about two and a half minutes. And the first thing is to cry and talk. The average male brain takes uh, three to five minutes, sorry, three to five hours to process. And they want to be left alone. I also heard you talk about, you know, unfortunately it happens, but we do have an explosive outburst by a child from time to time in our classroom or in our school building. And you talked about one of the strategies that's very effective is just drinking water. Yes. And where did that research come from? And, and what, are the, what are the effects of that? Well, what happens when, in the short version, what happens when you explode is that basically uh, the blood flow leaves your cortex. You don't have a regulated, integrated brain. Your, your brain stem is connected to your spinal cord through something called the vagus nerve. And your vagus nerve controls your autonomic nervous system. And what happens is that when you drink water, well, when your autonomic nervous system and your brainstem get upset, you produce cortisol. And one of the things that water does is water metabolizes the cortisol and calms you down. So, I mean, there are common strategies that are at, throughout the book. We don't want to give them all away because we do want you to go out and buy the book, folks, because it's an outstanding read. But, um, you know, a lot of times we hear teachers talk about how difficult it is to change behavior. And, uh, but I've also heard you say it's much easier to change motivation and just being able to build. I mean, at the end of the day, this is really about building relationships, whether it's with an adult, whether it's with a child, uh, whether it's with a parent, but just, you know, being able to have that communication. Yes, um, you can uh, change the motivation behavior by uh, changing how you appeal to the inner self. And it's a technique called validation and it's in the book. But what we do know is this, the more punitive a system a school system uses or, or in a classroom, the more punitive it is, the more bad behavior you tend to get. And so what you wanna do is change the motivation for it. And uh, it's a technique called motivation, yeah. And uh, if, I could, validation. if I could circle back a little bit, talking just about poverty in general, you know, talking about the, the class structure of the lower class, the middle class, and, and the upper class, you talk a lot in your book about the hidden rules. And for people that maybe aren't familiar with your work, maybe you can give just a brief overview of, of what some of those hidden rules are and how that really Im impacts student learning. Right. One of the things that we talk about in the book is that your environment shapes your thinking to a large extent. In fact, if you look at the brain research, your emotional self is highly structured by the time you're three, pretty much permanently, totally structured by the time you're six, and then it gets restructured in adolescence. But that early structuring occurs when you don't have language. So you watch the behaviors of the people around you and you, you use them then to, to negotiate your environment. And the fewer your resources, we define poverty and wealth as a set of resources, nine resources, the fewer they are, the more you live in a very unstable environment, and then the more the rules of survival come to play. So if you're in middle class, which is more of a stable environment, i.e. you know where you're gonna sleep at night, you know you got food every day, which right now in the pandemic is not tr true for a lot of households. But basically, you have some rules about how you deal with time and money. And time becomes the big identifier. 
because everybody's only got 24 hours a day and how you spend that 24 hours a day determines to a huge extent what you know and who you know. What happens in the world of middle class, you spend your time on three things, work, achievement, and material security. So you spend a great deal of time at work. You go to school at night to take more courses. Uh, so you can have a better job and you build material security. You, you get a mortgage, it becomes an asset, that kind of thing. And you have four rules about uh, money. One is I don't ask you for money and you don't ask me. Number two is if you borrow, you gotta pay it back. Number three, you never ever quit a job until you have another one. And number four, you don't tell people your salaries, okay? But if you're in old money, you have a different problem or new money for that matter. If you're wealthy, you have a different problem because you have so many resources, you can't take care of them by yourself. So then you have people help you. You pay people to help you. That makes you vulnerable at a personal safety level. You know, you can be robbed, you can be kidnapped. Uh, my cousin had a factory in Indiana and he had an, a chemical factory, had an employee inadvertently make a, a spill of a chemical into the ground. Well, his factory was very close to a river and his employee told him right away. But by the time they got it all cleaned up, it was $6.5 million. But you, so you're vulnerable. So the bottom line is you make your decisions against your financial, your social and your political connections for two reasons. One, they, they keep you safe. And number two, they help you make more money. And then that leads to a different set of rules. And one of them has to do with, for example, going to a party. When you go to a party among that 1%, that 10.3 million net worth or more, you don't introduce yourself. You wait to be introduced. And when they introduce you, they say your connection because that indicates your safety. And the rule about money is you just don't talk about it. You just don't. But if you're in poverty and you've been there two generations, generational, you have a different problem again. Your problem is that you don't have resources. They're unstable. And so you make your decisions every day against relationships, survival, entertainment. Entertainment takes away the pain. And that's one of the reasons why in the school business, when you're dealing with children out of generational poverty, a lot of times parents fear them getting too educated because when people get too educated, they leave and they don't want them to leave. And in poor white neighborhoods, they'll say, you're about your raisins. Uh, in poor African-American neighborhoods, they call them Oreos. Hispanic neighborhoods, they call them coconuts. Poor Asian neighborhoods, bananas. Poor Native American Indian neighborhoods, they call them apples. Red on the outside, white on the inside. But the issue is we're gonna lose you. And so I think you have all these rules that are operating and the rule about money and poverty is you share it. It's communal. So uh, what we're seeing is that all of a sudden now, if you've been middle class and now you're going back to survival and your resources are thin, those rules are uncomfortable for you. And you don't want to ask for help. You don't want to ask for money, um, but you don't want to go hungry either. And you know, one of the, uh, you were speaking, I think, in Indiana, and, and I saw a clip uh, on YouTube not too long ago, 
and you were talking about uh, a high school principal, I think, or, or maybe an elementary school principal, and there were a set of twins, and, and this person noticed that they were wearing the same clothes over and over and over. So the principal called the mom and said, I've noticed this. Would it be okay if I gave you some money to buy the girls some clothes? And she said, yeah. But when she gave the girl the clothes, they didn't go and buy new clothes. They went out and bought a DVD player. And that's exactly what you're talking about because it numbs the pain that now we have something and we get to forget for a short period of time that maybe we're impoverished. Right. Or that things are too unpredictable. The more unpredictable things get, the more higher your anxiety climbs. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating. And uh, you know, it's, there's no reason to, uh, I mean, if you give them that money, they can do whatever they want with it. It's, it's, it's their choice and they, they're going to do what's best for their kids. And, you know, I also sit here thinking as we're talking, um, and, and I hope this lands well, but, you know, we always hear that education is the pathway out of generational poverty. But hearing you talk here over the last few minutes, if that's not something that a lot of impoverished families have set as a goal, then that's, that's truly a misnomer that we're, we've all been led to believe, and we need to change our thinking about that. Well, here's the deal right now, and I'm just reading um, a book I just finished that is a mind blower. It's called The Storm Before the Calm by uh, George Friedman. And one of the things he talks about in the future, in the next eight years, that we're going to be faced with is this astronomical cost of the university systems and particularly and student debt and I think one of the things that's happening right now is when you have a kid out of high uh, a kid out of poverty go to college one only one out of nine gets a bachelor's degree out of it and many of them come out saddled with unbelievable debt okay and the issue is for many people in in poverty you, it's not even a choice for you to go because you have to, as soon as you, if you graduate from high school, you have to start work. And so what you have, you have, it takes a very unusual individual who can work 40 hours a week and complete school. And I also know that you travel uh, really the world and speak and do work with a lot of school districts, churches, all types of groups. Um, over that period of time, what are some of the most common questions that you get? If you had to make a list of a couple, uh, what would the, the two most prevalent be? Well, one of the most interesting questions I get a lot is from parents who've adopted children who have foster children. And they've done everything. And so I'll always ask them, at what age did you get the child? Okay. And part of the issue is, did you get them before that emotional self was established, okay? Or after that emotional self was established? Um, that's a question. And another one people ask a lot about is, how do I know when to give and when not to give? And part of what I tell them is this, you have to think of the Cartman Triangle. I don't know if you know about the Karpman Triangle, but I give it to administrators a lot because it's one of the best tools for dealing with uh, issues with parents, angry parents. What it is, if you draw a triangle and you put in one corner a abuser, the other corner rescuer, and the other corner victim, okay? What happens in the Karpman Triangle, K-A-R-P-M-A-N, 
is two things. One, if you get in that triangle with anybody, you're gonna take on all three roles. Eventually, you're not only gonna be the abuser, but the rescuer and the victim. And number two, you never solve the problem. So what I say to people is, all right, you wanna help this person, okay? You wanna be the, the rescuer, okay? At what point in time will you become the victim? And at what time will you become the bully, okay? And then I, ask, I say to them, the rule I use to decide whether or not to get into the triangle or not is, is this something this person could do for themselves? If you gave them the instructions and you taught, worked, stood beside them, is this something they can do for themselves? Or do they truly need you to do it for them? I supported my brother for, um, uh, I'd say eight or nine years. He had Parkinson's and then he got cancer and then he died. He couldn't work, okay? And so this was not something he could do for himself. So I think one of the things you have to look at is how do I know when I can, when I'm helping versus creating that Cartman triangle? And I always look at, is this something I, they could do with them for themselves? if they had the model. Well, that's great advice. And I'm certainly going to check that out and share that with my aspiring principals in our, in our program and take a hard look at that. So uh, it's been a great conversation. And again, I'm such a big fan and I'm so honored to be able to spend a little bit of time with you. Before we wrap things up though, uh, could you talk a little bit about your website, the ahaprocess.com, the services that you provide, the videos that are available. And uh, obviously you're very receptive. You're reaching out to folks or you wouldn't be here, but you're always willing to reach out and help folks. Thank you. Uh, the website is www.ahaprocess.com, A-H-A-P-R-O-C-E-S-S.com. And one of the things we're doing right now in the middle of COVID is we are offering both a framework for understanding and emotional poverty as a digital online course. And you can, we've reduced our price uh, because one of the things I'm really concerned about is when teachers come, when the kids come back, you're gonna have a lot more kids in poverty and you're gonna, financial poverty and a lot more children in emotional poverty. And what are the tools that educators are going to have to deal with that? So they, right now it's uh, $50, I think, if you, um, if you have more than 100 people sign up, it's $50 and you get a book, $40 and you get an electronic book. But it's a way to, it's a six hours of training, it's a way to make training available to people, yes. Um, and then we also have online trainer trainer certification so that someone wants to come back to their district and train, we train them and then we give them the PowerPoints uh, so they can do that as well. And assuming things get back to normal in the fall, I'm sure you have a full slate uh, of places you're gonna visit, conferences. Uh, if a school district wants to work with you or a member of your team, what's the best way to go about contacting you? Go to the website. Okay, or they can use this phone number, 1-800-424-9484. Either way, uh, they can do that. And one last thing, the reason I called the company AHA, uh -huh, and I'm so sorry I did that, is because people would write on their evaluation, this was an AHA uh -huh for me, okay? But then it named the company that, 
And then nobody knew how to answer the phone, you know? Aha! Uh -huh. You know, it was a huge problem. So by hey, that you, time, it was too late. You've been doing this for, you know, 25 years now at least. Yep. And it kind of take me through the evolution of just beginning to where you are now. How have you seen the shift now where people have a better understanding uh, of what it is you're talking about with the poverty research? Yes, next year uh, will be 25 years. And I never thought I'd do it this long. I, I thought I'd do it a year and it would be finished. Um, but how things have changed is this. When I first started, when I said that relationships make all the difference for kids from poverty, I had people make fun of me. I had a couple of professors write papers. That was crazy. It couldn't possibly be true. Um, another thing that changed was that when I started this work, I said the definition of poverty is nine resources and the extent to do what you do without them, money only being one of them. And uh, that was a new idea. And now everywhere I go, virtually every piece of reading I do about poverty, they talk about resources as opposed to money. Okay, that's a much more common idea. And the other thing I would say is that I don't hear people say anymore, uh, this kid can't learn because he's poor. When I started out, I heard that a lot. You know, this, this kid just can't learn because he's poor. And so I, I, when I die, and we're all going to die at some point in time, I will be grateful if that one, if that one conversation is gone, that people can't learn because they're poor. I, um, and I hope we get to the point where we say that it's the environment that has the deficit, not the person, okay? That we look at what the environment didn't provide versus what the person doesn't come with. And um, if we can make that shift, I'll be really happy. Well, again, thanks for your time. And, and again, folks, you want to get out and buy all of Ruby Payne's books, but definitely a framework for understanding poverty and the newest book, Emotional Poverty. They're a must for your school library. So that's a wrap for another episode here of the Reimagined Schools podcast. And as always, folks, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.